Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Brett Easton-Ellis about his first work of non-fiction, White. Brett Easton-Ellis is the author of six novels, including Less Than Zero, An American Psycho, and a collection of stories. He hosts the Brett Easton-Ellis podcast, available on Patreon, and lives in Los Angeles, and Brett is now also the author of a book of non-fiction, White, which we're going to be talking about today. Brett, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So, White starts with you working yourself up into something of a rage. Why? Well... Rage might be too dramatic. It starts off this book with a very ominous paragraph where I noticed that on social media, I found that I was becoming fearful and angry. And I am not a fearful or angry person. And I was wondering how social media was feeding this, causing this to happen. And I realized that it was because of what I call the hysterics of opinion that I noticed people were putting forth. And that People wanted to be heard, so they were louder, they were angrier, they were more hyperbolic than perhaps they'd be if you were just sitting alone with them. And this activated something in me, and I realized that in social media, not the real world necessarily, because social media is not the real world, I was becoming what everyone else was becoming. I was becoming an angry person on social media. And though I never used social media that way, I never used that, I never was an angry Twitterer. But I noticed that this was happening and I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why was I get why was I overreacting to other people's overreactions to things? And white really becomes a kind of investigation into what has happened to us via social media and how has it warped us into these creatures who seem to be so angry all the time. And um, and so I go back to the beginning. I go back to my childhood. And this is a theme that you've you've written about in in essays. You mentioned, for instance, an essay in Vice in in the book. And I, and I guess this is one of the reasons why the book came about. So these opinions of yours that you you expand on in this book are you know are out there in the world already. But this book is. I mean, as we record this, it hasn't even been published yet. But like all, most of the press that you've been doing for it, and a lot of the reviews have been quite tempestuous. I mean, have you been surprised at the reaction to it so far? Well, I was prepared because it was the same reaction in the US. 
So England is actually a little bit more tempered than the U.S. was. You've got to understand something. I have always gotten bad reviews. I have never been a well-reviewed author. I've never been a critic's darling. I've never been nominated for a prize. <laughs> Starting with Less Than Zero. I mean, people are too young to remember this, but when Less Than Zero was first published in 1985 and I was 21 years old, half the reviews were terrible, with critics clawing out their hair going, oh my God, this is the end of publishing. Simon & Schuster, a respectable publishing house, is publishing the drugged-out rantings of a 20-year-old Los Angelian punk. Has publishing come down to this? Is this what really – is this literature? So starting from then, and of course moving on to American Psycho and to other books I've published, I'm completely used to this idea, and I mentioned this in White, that I am the worst review writer of my generation. I don't know what I do to trigger such a reaction. I'm not a provocateur. I'm not thinking about the audience when I'm writing. I'm thinking about myself, and I'm thinking about the book and how I want the book to turn out. It's a very literary um, experience for me. And if I really wanted the attention I guess I would have published more books. I haven't published anything in 10 years. And I also, I guess I, I could have written a sequel to American Psycho or I could have written some shocking novel about Silicon Valley. And uh, But I don't know. It's just why, first of all, why is the press still interested? Why are they still interested? 35 years. Okay, I'm so awful. Uh, my ideas are so old, white, irrelevant. Um, why are you spending thousands of words? The Guardian's run five articles about this book so far, and it hasn't even been published. May 2nd. I don't know when we're recording this, but it's sometime late April. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer. I mean, I think it's safe to say at this distance, you know, American Psycho, certainly, in terms of its its reach and its influence, is probably one of the most important American books of the last 30 years. But as you said, at the time, it was... Certainly controversial. It's, it's his first publisher withdrew it, and it ended up being very quickly published by somebody else. But then that shows, obviously, you know, this, one of the themes of this book is how we've become, you know, in your words, more hysterical. Yes. But those were controversies then, both Less Than Zero and American Psycho. I mean, do you think what has changed then? Do you think they would even, or certainly American Psycho? Do you think it would even get published now? No. I don't think American Psycho would be published now um, for many reasons. I mean, part of it is that there, we were still in a time where a depiction of misogyny was not an, considered an act of misogyny, where a depiction of racism, and there are many racist moments in American Psycho, is not an act of racism. People weren't literal-minded yet. A book could be a metaphor for something. I don't know if metaphor exists anymore. I don't know if metaphor exists in our society, and I don't know if metaphor exists for young people or for millennials. Things are exactly what they are. And I think if if you publish something like American Psycho now, and believe me, its publication was no easy birth. But if, if you publish that now, I think people would take it literally. They'd miss the metaphor of it and they would say, this is toxic. This is sexist. This is racist. This is uh, misogynist. Uh, and there would be no conversation that there there was ultimately in 1991. Ultimately, there was. But I just don't think that would be possible now. Less than zero. Uh, I still think it would go through the triggering division of the publishing house and they'd make me tone down certain things. Um, certainly, I don't think they would allow one of the narrator's friends to uh, get an erection watching a snuff film. I did not wake up this morning thinking that I was going to say that sentence, but I did. 
All right. Well, there you go. Well, I mean, book no- tours. Normally, when I get to the end of this interview, the, the question I ask, I ask an author is, um, "What are the writers?" have been an influence on you but I think we'll, we'll do this now but also yeah. I think it's probably bearing in mind we're talking about whether America Tucker would even be published now to talk about what writers you think perhaps you've influenced and a couple of people that I've had on this show um, I think immediately of a Tessa Moshfeg who is you know both a, you know a big fan of yours and will say that she's influenced and, and just last week I interviewed the writer Jarrett Kobeck and we actually talked about you in the interview and uh, you know again he laid out that he's he's a a very big fan. I mean, you have had an a influence on a generation of writers, some of which could probably be called millennials. This is true. This is true. I love a Tessa Moshveg. And I guess I could see my influence in her book. But again, she has such a strong voice that whatever influence I might have is um, entwined with her vision. And it's just not like a Brett Easton Ellis mock-up. And Jared, I've read his book too, which he uh, obviously, now that you say this, yes, of course, Jared was influenced by me, as have I run into many authors much younger than I, who you're right, are millennials. Upper aged up millennials, not necessarily on the younger side of things. And yeah, I guess so. I guess that's that's really nice. And um, it's one of the... um, positive things about this whole business that people have reacted to your work and it's meant enough to them so that they reference it in their own. But I also have to say it is gratifying to meet people at readings. You know, I don't do, I haven't done this in 10 years and I started doing readings and signings again about two weeks ago in Southern California. And, you know, as jaundiced as I might be about the world at times and as corrupt as I think everything is, there is something gratifying. And I have no problem sitting at a queue and and signing hundreds and hundreds of books. So all of that is good. The only problem is I'm really not thinking of anybody when I'm writing a book. They're not part of it. So it's just these little moments when you come out of your little den and you, uh, you know, wave to the crowd and that you get that connection. Otherwise, I am alone. It's a very solitary life and I prefer it that way. And this is all something else. Just staying on that theme of other of those other writers for a second, um American Psycho has a number of real life characters in it from that period as an encounter in the elevator with Tom Cruise and another major character who will remain nameless for now, but we'll we'll no doubt be talking about a lot later on in the interview. Um, another real life character. Um and it's a you know it's a seminar book of the satire of the 1980s and and Jarrett Kobeck also wrote a book about that period the 1980s which features yourself as, I read it. as a recurring character how is it how does that feel to to have that that sort of thing repeated well he got some details wrong <laughs> and i told him via a friend that i would never have played bobby brown at a christmas party <laughs> that you were at so you got that detail wrong never play bobby brown um well you know i i it's it's been in a few books where I've become a character in um, in, in someone else's narrative. Um, it's fine. It's fine. I don't. I don't. It's it's certainly no stranger than a lot of other elements of my life, and I'm. I, I hope. I hope more people do it. Um, you mentioned we've mentioned a couple of times the you know the the concept of the millennial. Another character in this book, White, is your partner, who's a millennial. What does yes. he think of his role in this book? He has to admit that it's accurate. As much as he doesn't like it, 
he has to admit it's accurate. Sometimes he starts accusing me of exaggerating and then he pulls back and realizes, no, you're right. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, I did that. And uh, I have to own it. We love each other. And we've been together for 10 years. And I feel I have the right to write about him honestly. If he didn't approve or didn't like it, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't do it. But he has uh, approved. And I think it's been educational for both of us because we are of two different separate generations that have very different mindsets, millennial and Gen X. And they in many ways, couldn't be further apart. So our relationship at times has resembled a kind of bad sitcom where I'm the crusty old Gen Xer uh, railing against you progressives and you young kids. And then he's the over-idealistic, aspirational millennial who believes in utopias and that everything can be fixed with just a bit of bit of love. But I think it works. I think this makes us more interesting to each other and has given the relationship attention and we are educating each other. And also our relationship does not depend upon solely the values of our generations. And it doesn't, believe me, revolve around solely politics or our disagreements about how we look at the world and how how things have fallen into place. I'm, we're roughly the same age. I'm a, 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 gener- a generation Xer too. And, you know, my parents were baby boomers or whatever the British equivalent of that is, because it's really an American phrase. But, you know, we grew up in a, you know, in a time of a pretty prosperous time, probably yes. as prosperous as our respective countries have ever been. Oh, totally. Property was affordable. You know, I benefited from the very, very end of, you know, a free education in this country. You talk in the book, you know, just one example of your partner going through this, you know, you you live in at that time in in Manhattan, you know, one of the most expensive places in in the world. And he's basically looking at unpaid internships for a job. You know, millennials do have a lot of shit to deal with. And I write about that. I, there's a paragraph in this book after I write about what it's like to live with a millennial, how sympathetic I ultimately am. And I go down the list of things they've had to put up with and that have affected them. And no wonder they are the way they are sometimes. You can be annoyed and sympathetic. You can be both. You can be a bit irritated and sympathetic. That is the way I'm dealing with Todd a lot of the times. And also you have to understand, as you're pointing out, that generations don't suddenly sprout up in a vacuum. They are reactions to the generation that preceded them. Just like Gen X was a reaction against boomer narcissism and boomer self-love and a kind of utopia boomer vision of the world because they were, um, you know, they were really one of the the most prosperous, best educated uh, generations in the history of the world. And we responded, Gen X, uh, being more ironic, less earnest, more cool, more ironic, more nihilistic, perhaps. And of course, I just had Chuck Palahniuk on my podcast and we were talking about this and and he was saying, why wouldn't they rebel against us? Why wouldn't they rebel against our negativity and American psycho and fight club and all that stuff? Why wouldn't they suddenly become these aspirational people who rejected nihilism, rejected negativity, rejected Heather's? 
Because there was an article about by a millennial about how triggered he was by Heather's, uh, the 80s black comedy that left Chuck and I in just utter disbelief. But then we looked at it through their eyes and it makes fun of school shootings. It makes fun of sexual assault. It lightly pokes fun at homophobia and homosexuality. And as that millennial writer wrote, he said, it doesn't teach us anything. It's interesting you use the word aspirational to describe millennials, because, again, if we're talking about a world where, you know, they've got colossal student loans, sometimes in up to $100,000 loans, um, can't afford to buy property, finding it very difficult to get on the job ladder. What is there to be aspirational about? And I guess this is where we find ourselves in let's be aspirational to save the planet or whatever. Yes, Exactly. Right. I mean, that is I mean, my boyfriend is so positive, is so super positive about what could be. And yes, he blames boomers and Gen X for the shit he's stuck in right now. And he said, you all fucking ruined it for the rest of us. And you're all so greedy. Gen Xers are a relatively tiny group. We are. We're, we're smushed in between these two massive generations, boomer and millennials. We're like the, whatever it's called, the forgotten middle child of, of history. So it's not really Gen X who rails against so much. But, um, it is, it's true. All of the stuff that is, that my boyfriend has to go through, um, especially the job market. He doesn't, he's unemployed right now. It is stressful for us. It is something we have to deal with daily, as well as his health insurance and all of the things that we, um, deal with on a daily. And, and he's furious that Trump is in the White House. And yet, um, he is, He's still a hopeful person in a way that certainly, you know, Chuck and I, we talked about, we had the luxury to kind of be ironic and like say, fuck you to the world. Even if we fully didn't mean it, it was even if it might have been a bit of a pose. That's what I find so interesting about millennials, that they have this things are tough. And yet maybe because of that. They have this aspirational idea of ascendancy and of making everything perfect and of being super positive. And of course, we can't avoid the fact that you've, I guess you've rather provocatively called this book white. And to be fair, you, you are, you know, you're very, you are very clear in this book when you're describing whether or not it's, you know, it's people that are angry about Trump getting in, which we'll come on to in the, in the second half. You're usually talking about very privileged white people of your acquaintance. The same with the millennials that you're describing. But clearly, again, there's, there's an issue of privilege here, isn't there? Well, it is an issue. Or is it an issue? Or is it just a fact? And I don't hide from it. I refer to it constantly. The original title of this book was White Privileged Male. And uh, this is a book from the point of view of a white privileged male, for better or for worse. You can find plenty of other books out there from other people. And and so, um, yeah, and, and it is about, this is not about the marginalized. This is not about people with real severe problems about poverty. These are not people who are going to really be affected by Donald Trump's policies, which I mostly don't agree with. And I am talking as I am about, like I am in every single book I've written, the entitlement of a certain section of of society, the entitled society. And that is where I'm roaming throughout this book. Why is the entitled society so, again, overreactive towards stuff? Uh, why do they think it's affecting them and no one else? Why is Hollywood so up in arms? Why are my super wealthy friends having meltdowns? This goes all the way back to Lesson Zero. And so, it, so White does kind of continue thematically the worlds i've been 
interested in covering my whole life. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Brett Easton Ellis. We're talking about his book of non-fiction, White. And Brett, we have mentioned him, but just going back to one of the characters in American Psycho, one of the real-life characters is Donald Trump, and, and he acts as a sort of hero and, and father figure for Patrick Bateman. Um, this is the 1980s you're writing about here, in the late 80s, early 90s, when you're, when you're writing it and the book comes out. You're looking back, but only slightly, but Trump is a major figure in the book. You know, you detail some of his business practices... You know, you had this guy down then. Why is there surprised that people were upset when he got elected? Well, there's being surprised, and then there's the five stages of grief, and then there's finally acceptance. That hasn't happened, and that is the problem. That is the problem in the adult world. You win some, you lose some. You don't always get your way. You know, sometimes, look, my boyfriend is far left as you can get. He is like, what, what would you call him, a Democrat? Democratic socialist or socialist Democrat? I, there's a difference between those two things. Or they're the same. Let's say, yeah. yeah, and he is um, passionately anti-Trump. Passionately anti-Trump to his detriment. He got trumped. My boyfriend became addicted to opiates again. Mild addiction, but still, it's lousy rehab. Whatever. Ridiculous, my friend. Ridiculous. And he has had a complete breakdown over Trump now for almost three years. The breaking point for him, of course, was, I don't know if you in Britain follow this, was the Mueller report, which he had placed all of his money in the casino on. All of his chips were on the Mueller report. And he knew that once that report came out, Trump was going to be gone. We're going to get back to normalcy. 
didn't happen. My boyfriend became infuriated with the mainstream media that he'd been following. He didn't watch Rachel Maddow for a week. He was quite upset. Her ratings plummeted by half during the post-Mueller report, as did a lot of people's ratings who were pushing the Mueller report forward. And just as he was getting back on his feet, Joe Biden got me too And my boyfriend might not be a fan at all of Joe Biden, but he thinks that that might be the only chance the Democrats have against Donald Trump. He's a Bernie Sanders guy, but he is realistic enough to know that polling and in terms of getting that group of people, that Joe Biden is probably going to be the candidate against Trump. And when he saw the media going after Joe Biden and me tooing him because he stood close to women or he smelled their hair or whatever, he never, never sexually assaulted anybody and he never acted inappropriately. When my boyfriend saw these women on TV tearfully saying it invaded my space, I couldn't believe that Joe touched me that way while we were at the press conference. My boyfriend said, we are fucked. We're totally fucked. And even Obama had to come on television that we can give a speech about the circular firing squad of the left. You've got to be careful. You have one target, go for it. But don't go to the next target that's connected to it, or otherwise you're going to kill everybody, and then no one's going to be around. My boyfriend tasted this at first with the with Al Franken getting dismissed from the Senate for me tooing in some lame picture. And he went through a kind of radicalization in these last couple of weeks. Doesn't mean he's not going to vote Democrat and he's not passionately you know, trying to work for the Democratic Party. Um, but he uh, became slightly more cynical. What does this have to do with Donald Trump? It has everything to do with Donald Trump. I wished that he ignored Donald Trump. I wish the entire Democratic Party had ignored Donald Trump. Get mad, have your little anti-Trump march or whatever, and then get together and with much cunning, deal with some policy and then find the right candidate and then vote him out of office. But to place all of your chips in Stormy Daniels and Michael Avenatti and the Mueller report was just an epic waste of time. And it made everyone so unhappy. And I hate that my boyfriend got trumped. The resistance didn't go anywhere. Even if there's not obvious, you know, collusion with Russia or whatever in in the Mueller report, there is still enough dodginess in it that in any sane world... Donald Trump would it would at least cause of course if not of course you know impeachment it would at least cause him some sort of, of sort course. of trouble but you know as you talk about in the book and how the mainstream media your CNNs and your New York Times singularly failed to notice the same thing happened in the UK over you know Brexit uh, yes. and the, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of, of the Labour Party you know the mainstream media here did not see it coming and when it did happen were running around blaming everybody but themselves for you know for not seeing it. Fascinating to be here this last week and the difference from watching it in America and being here and talking to people. People say it's worse, much worse here than it is in America with Trump. That's nothing compared to what's going on with Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit. I hear this from everybody. Oh, whatever is going on in America. This is really the disaster. Well, what I was going to say was, as I said, you know, we're through the looking glass. The world is different. So, so He was right to, you know, he was right to want to put all these chips on the Mueller report because in any same world, the Mueller report would have finished Trump. But we're not in that world anymore. What world are we in? Well, exactly. That was going to be my question. Don't ask me. Because I don't know. Because there was something. All the Democrats I know in the last month said the the election's over. Trump's going to get reelected. Every Democrat I know says that. But everyone was saying that about Hillary Clinton 
getting elected four years ago. So I'm not sure how right everyone is about that. My boyfriend really believed that for about a week. And then he got re-energized by a couple of the candidates. And he's now not believing that. And he's actively moving forward and going to help with, I guess, Bernie's campaign and I don't know. And he, and he likes a lot of the other ones. He doesn't like Karen Gillibrand because she got Al Franken out of the Senate. But um, I don't know. He's, again, his bounce back time is high. He was super depressed and then he jumped up. Kavanaugh, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, were a great divider in our household. We both had different uh, lenses looking at it. I'm not a fan of Brent Kavanaugh by any means, but I thought what the Democrats were doing was just ugh, not cool. He was all for it. And when that happened, he went into a funk. But then a couple of days later, he bounced back because he's young and he can. And he's idealistic. He has an idealism. And I actually like that about him. It's going to come up against the wall at a certain point like it does for all of us. And he's going to learn something and pull his pants up and he's going to be okay. You know, without wanting to make this another Jared Kobeck interview. And one of the things we talked about last week was the idea that one of the reasons why the people on the West and East Coast, the people in the media particularly, are so angry about the election of Donald Trump is their part in creating Donald Trump in the first place. Thank you. Yes, correct. Correct. That is a huge part of it. But you got to take responsibility. And I don't look if Donald Trump, let's say, let's say his approval rating is 42. I think it's higher, but whatever. What is the media's? I think it's about 17%, 18%. Who's won? You know, the media really did itself a massive disservice in this last couple of years. And I just don't understand why they didn't come clean and are just reporting things in some kind of neutral, unopinionated style. Because that's really what most people want. Though ratings and newspapers sales tell you that there's a faction of the crowd that wants something differently. But I think I'm longing to find a channel, and it's usually my local news channels that are without opinion, and where I just want to hear about the news, and I don't want to hear about how awful everything is when maybe everything isn't so awful. And I don't believe we're living in a dystopian handmaid's tale thing in America. America is not that. But I don't know. I don't. Sometimes I think that the media is involved in this kind of progressive nihilism where everything is presented as such a disaster, such a nightmare under Trump that reality eludes them. I don't know. It's too bad because I used to trust the media. I was the biggest New York Times reader. I only watch CNN, said the old man on the porch, shaking his fist to the clouds. <laughs> well, just to finish it off then, I mean, it, it would certainly be easy to suggest from a lot of the media coverage around this book that this is all it's about. The last few things we've been talking about, Donald Trump and millennials and, and what have you, and safe spaces. That's the clickbait. Yeah. Well, there's also lots of you know, really good stuff about your, your early life in California, your, your early career, you know, the writing of Less Than Zero and the adaptation of it into a film, you know, the genesis of American Psycho. And I particularly enjoyed you talking about growing up, again, we were different countries but had a similar sort of you know seeing horror films way too young you know getting vhs videos at, at friends houses and stuff and i particularly enjoyed the essay in the book where you talk about democratization of of media but also 
how everything is just so easy. People are not invested in music they like. No, or, they're not. you know, books they like now no. because everything is available at a click. Yeah, it is. And I do miss that analog era. I bet you, you can even sense in some factions a turning back to that, to that analog era because so many people are dissatisfied with the the ease and the disposability of the digital era. There is something uh, romantic about the tactileness of a record and of a book and of celluloid and of waiting in line to see a film or going to a bookstore to buy a book. It really did. It was a matter of investment. You were investing in something and it made it matter to you more. And I see my boyfriend now who is, you know, he's a college educated, very smart guy, but he is so distracted that it is very difficult for him to concentrate on one thing. It happens with a lot of suggestions on my part, but he is easily, easily distracted. And it's very common for him to not really want to sit through a movie or listen to half of a song or check out something for 30 seconds on YouTube before moving to the next thing. And I do believe that does cause a lot of his stress. I've been talking to Brett Easton Ellis. We've been talking about his work of nonfiction, White, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Brett, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.